In this episode of the Cold Star Project, we're going to dig into a statement from outside the tech world bubble so that you can use it in your world. And that statement is this, strong governments are inherently unstable. Now, I don't know where I read this and I can't find the quote, and that's really frustrating to me, but I know that I read it. It may have been from Donald Keegan's On the Origins of War and the Preservation of Peace, a great book about how national conflicts are created by assaults on the national honor rather than some sort of rational thing, or even ethical or ideological problems. The issue here with strong governments are inherently unstable is that it's easy to get full of yourself and do something stupid that upsets the masses, which then goes and upsets the apple cart. And as a founder, you do need to pay attention to this. Now we're talking here more about democracies, perhaps Republican democracies, parliamentary democracies, rather than dictatorships, although you will find that most dictatorships follow this principle as well, being strong governments. When it's time for them to be overthrown, they are violently overthrown and replaced with something else, perhaps another dictatorship. In the democracy situation, the leaders forget. Yeah, you won an election some time ago. It wasn't yesterday. That doesn't make you all powerful. The sense of support is on a sliding scale, right? It's not as strong as it was, necessarily, as the day after the election. American presidents have a honeymoon period. If you go and you check this out, you'll see that nearly all of the legislation, the real reform stuff that is passed, in Congress comes in the first 90 days or so of a new presidency. That's when they're able to act. After that, the honeymoon period is over. The jealousies and internal party rivalries. I'm not even talking about the opposing party here. I'm talking about people in your own party who hate your guts for winning. Stop being in that crystal lattice of alignment and come back to be adversarial to you. And so you don't get things passed anymore. Things get mired down. We've seen this again and again and again. A couple of examples of strong governments that have won good election results, but got knocked down unexpectedly. Churchill at the end of World War II. I mean, who's more popular than frickin' Winston Churchill after leading Britain out of World War II? What happens in 1945? Well, there's this thing called the caretaker government where everybody says, hey, this Churchill guy did a pretty good job for us, and even though he's beyond his kind of term limit here as prime minister, maybe we should let him stay in power until, I, I guess, the Japanese are defeated. That seems reasonable to us. But then, now Churchill was a conservative. The liberals got uppity and said, no, wait, 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 wait. We don't want that. Let's have an election. Because the other side always wants government. You can't blame him for trying. And everyone thought, well, this is silly. Churchill's going to be reelected, obviously. But what happened was this super unexpected swing from conservative to labor, the largest ever in a British election. 10.7% of the electorate that showed up to vote swung over to labor. 
And Churchill ended up on his butt. Thank you very much. We don't need you anymore. We're tired of you. Well, we give you an American example. A fellow named Richard Milhouse Nixon. 1972, he wins, I don't know, if not the most resounding electoral victory in American history, certainly one of the top. If you're tracking the electoral vote count here, his total was 520 to 17. And George McGovern, his opponent, won Massachusetts and a district in Delaware, and there was a jerk of a faithless elector in Virginia who switched his vote and didn't vote the way that the people told him to vote. 1972, 520 to 17 electoral votes. Nixon is kicking ass. He literally won 49 states. Wow. And what happened? Well, turned out he had done, or the party had done, some kind of bad things, and everyone started swarming around to take this guy down. And that's eventually what happened. If you don't know, Nixon was about to be impeached. The reputation of the presidency was temporarily ruined. I mean, really run through the mud by what this guy and his cabal had done. A lesson many people today just don't know about. It's not that they've forgotten. All the old people know. <laughs> but the young have no clue that this ever happened. And the succeeding president pardoned him to get rid of the, quote, long national nightmare. And that was just two years later that Nixon was out on his butt after winning that amazing victory. Let's contrast with something like the Roman Republic with a Senate and a system that keeps one man from being in power too long and getting too much power. Not really allowed to do a lot of things in the Roman Republic. You can't just go raise private armies. It's not allowed. Julius Caesar did a number of illegal things, which he was going to be prosecuted for if he ever showed up back in Rome from Gaul, where he'd been going around stomping the local civilians and taking their money. Oh, turning a lot of them into slaves, too. Or just dead. So he kind of had to take over. But the Roman Republic, with its interesting system, it had a real greasy pole system trying to climb up it. And then you were consul for a little while, like a year, and then bounced back down. But this system ran for almost 500 years, from 509 BC to 27 BC. That's incredible. And why? Because it required coalitions. Coalitions are inherently weak things, right? People banding together for a common cause for a period of time. Usually a short period. But what's going on with the coalition that isn't going on with the strong central government? Or the singular party that believes it is the second coming? The coalition has a built-in cause to go along. It has a reason to stick together. Because if the coalition doesn't stick together, well then there isn't enough voting power to get anything done. I.e., that piece of the coalition, that 
person, that member of the coalition, no longer has any power if they start going berserk and going against the direction. Now, a lot of people like to make fun of government. I have some experience with government, and I will tell you to your face, you would make a dog's breakfast out of governing. I probably would. Governing is hard. It is, I believe, one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing, you can do. Just like leading a company. Everybody's always on the case of politicians about electoral promises. Oh, you made this promise during the election, and then once you got elected, you just forgot about it. Yeah, that is common. Do you know why? Because being on the inside is nothing like being on the outside. And the moment you're elected, your national security advisor walks in and says, Hey, buddy, here are ten priorities that are all very much more important. Every single one of them is more important than those things that you got elected on. And you didn't know about them because they're national security issues and we don't share them with outsiders i.e. those who are not in power at the moment. Oh, and you can't act on all these. You have to pick one. And so the leader picks one. New, new leader. Doesn't really know. Is feeling their way along. Doesn't know who to trust. Doesn't know if they're going to make the right decision. For Clinton, this was gays in the military, and he flubbed it, for example. And it messed him up for years. Couldn't get anything passed in Congress for years because of it. You've got to pick one of these new things you didn't know anything about and are all really, really important. So don't be so hard on your elected officials. There's a great book called Adiamante, which is a kind of word for diamond, by a fellow named Ellie Modesit Jr. that I keep coming back to. I've been reading this thing since the early 2000s. Great little book. It's a science fiction book. And one of the reviewers of it said, because Modesit is willing to be clear about first principles, we get a really good story. There's a lot of clarity to the ideas in this book. Modesit posits a future post-nuclear holocaust building back culture that is very environmentally conscious. And it has a different way of measuring than we're used to. It, it has a closed system and in this closed system, there are only so many resource units that the society has available. And instead of taking from the system, you put into the system. So if you want to lead, this is a very interesting concept here. If you want to lead and, and tell people what to do, there's a price, a very heavy, heavy price that you have to pay for being able to have the authority to tell people what to do. You can pay this off, this debt off, by doing what they call pushing screens, which means running computer-related things, programs, and doing maintenance or going up into orbit and doing maintenance on satellite weapon systems and all kinds of interesting things. But the odds are, if you're like the president of the country, essentially, you're never going to pay that debt off. You're going to die long before you have the chance to do it. But at least they're measuring it. I like this is because it's an interesting alternative point of view. I don't fully agree with it, though, because I don't like the idea of limited resources. I'm a big believer in abundance, that there is more than enough. Money is always being created, for example. It's not in limited supply. 
And also I've been in experiences where 2 plus 2 doesn't just equal 4. I've seen it equal 7. There was a thing, look, part of my government experience has been an appointed member of committees of council in the municipality I grew up in. And you get elected in there if you want to be chair or vice chair of the committee. And the moment I walked in the room of this committee, they elected me vice chair. And then the following year, the chairman was retiring and I knew and I had set it up so that I was going to be elected the chair. And, and to be fair, like it's not like people were out with knives trying to get this job. I wanted it. I was going to get it because I wanted it. But I wanted to leave a legacy, do something that was important, something that would be remembered. And so I went to find a member of staff who was our liaison. And what we were all about was community grants. We were assessing the requests, the applications for community grant money, and essentially saying yay or nay. Should they get this money or not? Out of a, a limited fund, obviously. Couldn't fund everybody. So it had to be well laid out and really impact people, and there were a number of criteria. But I wanted to do something else beyond just this passive reporting to council. Council could tell us, hey, we want you to look at the sale of BC Rail, which was something that was happening at the time, and give us social and economic and environmental opinions about what you think that the impact of this is going to be. And I thought, what if we could wag the dog? What if we could send stuff up to council and say, hey, you guys need to be paying attention to this. So I went to find this staff member and I asked him, look, <laughs> what do you think we should do? And this is a great example of getting buy-in, because since it was his idea, he was fully invested in it, right? And he said, well, there's something out of Australia, I was in Canada at the time, called the Social Development Strategy. And I was like, huh, tell me more about that. And I wanted it. And I said, let's do that. And we had this area called Lower Lawnsdale that was undergoing major redevelopment. Old two, three-story buildings were getting flattened, knocked down, and replaced with 10, 20-story skyscrapers, mostly residential, a little bit of mixed use. You know, you got some density, horse trading going on in there with council. Yeah, we'll give you a taller tower if you give us a rec center down here. How about some green space? You know, we've got a trillion more cars coming in because all these families are living down here now, and it's a concrete jungle. How about we get a green space park in here? We could do that. So I hear about this chef's training program where the Salvation Army, working with the food bank, is getting food and using their commercial kitchen inside the Salvation Army to train homeless people on how to get some cook skills so that they can go get a job. And these were people who had missing teeth. Right? That's... You may not think much of it, but it's a major detriment to interviewing. And so by having some real skills, they had a fighting chance here to improve their situation. And they had a chef from the local college. It was a college at the time that uh, got upgraded to university status, which is kind of cool in the meantime. And so 
These three organizations were working together. The Salvation Army provided the facility, the college provided the teacher, and the food bank provided the raw materials in which to work. The problem is they were capped out at a certain number because the kitchen space, well, was in one part of town and it only had so much room, right? So one of the things I wanted to work on was how do we expand the capacity of this program? It's doing a good thing. Let's do something about that. And so I went around talking to people and I found out that the nonprofit organizations in the area all seemed to have this perspective that the pie was limited. Like I said, they were in this adiamante, limited resources kind of thinking, and I don't fully agree with that. I'm an unlimited power kind of guy, you know. So I was talking to the people who ran this retirement tower, Kiwanis Towers, and I found out that they had a completely unused commercial kitchen in their basement that nobody knew about outside of the Kiwanis people. I said, geez. You need to connect up with the Salvation Army and the food bank and the community college chef trainer. Bingo, increased capacity instantly. This is an example of 2 plus 2 equals 7. Are you doing things like that with your own organization? Or are you just letting things be or having that limited thinking mindset? I want to tie in what we're talking about here to venture capital, cash flow, investors, as a founder, if you're bringing these things into your organization, people can always go create something else if they don't like your leadership. The venture capitalists and the investors may be able to get rid of you as the founder. They did it to Steve Jobs, let's not forget. Are you better than Steve Jobs? Employees can always quit and go work somewhere else. Key employees with institutional knowledge. You should be concerned about this. People can always go create something else. There was a little thing called the French Revolution in the late 1700s. Very strong, absolute monarchy, overthrown by peasants holding brooms, fighting with broom handles. Kicked off by what? A financial crisis. A new king comes in and the country is in debt up to its eyeballs and the finance minister does nothing to reform what's going on. It's not much of a stretch to take that story and replace some of the names and titles. A tech founder comes in and there's a cash flow crisis and the investors get uppity. <laughs> it could be you. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something about this cautionary tale. Remember our thesis at the beginning was strong governments are inherently unstable. Be watchful coalitions tend to last longer.